Hello and welcome to Dana Responds, a discussion with focus on the everyday stories that connect us all. My name is Donal Christie and today, anarchism in the UK. What is it all about and will we see its rise in British society? Find out as Dana Responds. Before we begin, a brief disclaimer that this episode does contain some strong language. choking now whatever whatever this spray is with all the paint people are running now what's going on sort of getting a little bit out of control I mean I'm not sure what's going on at the moment but they're running ahead just left the house i'm on my way to the anarchist rally um in central london today it's a bit gloomy um raining slightly a bit of wind as well but hopefully there'll be last friday i attended a rally in central london which was held by the movement green anti-capitalist front or gaff as it's sometimes referred as the group have recently been rising in headlines after they occupied the dilapidated Paddington Green Police Station last month, which was once the police anti-terror headquarters before its permanent closure in 2018. Since then, the group were forcibly evicted by the police and have now taken up residence in an abandoned pub in North London. The group established itself last year in part as a reaction to Extinction Rebellion and now operates across the UK. They believe that capitalism is the crisis and poses an existential threat to the world both in terms of the damage to the environment and increased social inequality. To get more insight into the group and its principles, I got exclusive access to the movement and had the opportunity to talk with a member who for reasons of anonymity we're calling Foster. Hi, Foster. Thanks for joining us today. How are you doing? Hi, I'm good. Thank you very much. How are you doing? Really well, really well. Really appreciate your time and being with us here. I can hear that your microphone's a little bit out, so just bear with us for the time being. So the first thing I kind of want to get to know about the organisation is, what is the Green Anti-Capitalist Front, or GAF as it's also known? What is GAF? Great question. We're generally lefty type people. Um, who basically believe that one, the climate emergency is a huge issue, and two, can't be solved without the end of capitalism. Hmm. But we have like local groups, as like gaffs popping up all over the UK, which is really nice. Yeah, I've heard that. It seems to be in all like a. There's so many different segments in in different cities. Is it just an amalgamation of of everyone or different individuals and groups? 
Um, it definitely started off in London um, as a, it was set up by the Anarchist Federation initially as a reaction to Extinction Rebellion's political nonsense. Um, so it started up as a reaction to that, um, to build like an alternative movement based on like um, politics and based on anti-capitalism. What is it that the GAF sort of stands for? What are their core, core values and ethos? Um, so we essentially are all anti-capitalist. Uh, that is the driving force behind it. So organisations like GAF and other individuals, what is the problem that they have with capitalism? There are some people who are so vehemently opposed to it. W what is it about it that is, is so wrong? For me personally, and I think generally in the movement, it comes from two main thrusts, uh, particularly with GAF. I started um, sort of activism from mainly an anti-capitalist point of view. I wasn't that much of an environmental activist or anything like that. Um, it was all about anti-capitalism for me, and that came from seeing the material effects it has on people's lives and the gross inequality which exists in our society. You know, it would take a very small fraction of the wealth of the top point not 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 one percent of people to solve the vast vast majority of the problems in the world, um, and they choose not to do that. Um, and they live in a system which allows them to choose not to do that and indeed encourages them to choose not to do that. So tell me about anarchism then. So if capitalism is sort of bad inherently, what is it about anarchism that will sort of change that? Or, or what are your sort of visions for the future as an organisation? So I'm obliged to point out that we are not officially an anarchist organisation. Just a lot of us are anarchists, but we have a broad variety of political traditions. But um, I'd say for me, anarchism is, so you've been, you've been to the grass social center, the green, radical, autonomous social space, um, green, radical, anti-capitalist socialist space. Um, and you've been here, and this is kind of a mini example of the world that we think anarchism could create. It's a world without hierarchy, where people aren't doing work, because if they don't do it, they're going to starve to death in the streets and not have health care for their kids and stuff. It's people are doing work because they believe in what they're doing. Um, and we think that that is the greatest motivator for human, humanity to live a decent life. Not this threat of don't work hard enough and you'll die. That's a really shit deal, if you ask us. And we think that by, you know, we don't, we've invested very little money into this, like considering what it is. But with creativity and with uh, cooperation, we've managed, we've managed to create a livable event space uh, and, you know, run a program of events. Okay, so what does a, an anarchistic sort of society look like? How, how do you envision it, for example? Um, honestly, I've got no idea. Uh, this new society, I wouldn't be able to say this is the society that I'd want exactly and this is how it would all work but I know the principles it would be run on and then kind of people living those principles would then create the society in kind of more of a procedural way, I guess. Can you see perhaps why people might feel a bit sort of concerned about not knowing about what anarchism is about or sort of dis disbelieving in it? Oh, I can totally see why people would be disbelieving. Um, I think, you know, it's very, it comes across as a very like fantastical idea when we've been told the whole time that capitalism is the only system. But I would encourage people to think of examples in their lives when they've cooperated with other people with no material reward and no sort of hierarchy or kind of threat. Hmm. Um, and it tends to work really well. And there's no reason that that couldn't work across a whole society, particularly when we have the level of technology right now that we wouldn't even need to do all that much work to all survive.
I think one of the best arguments for anarchism for me personally is that we have a level of automation now in manufacturing and services and everything, which is awesome, but we can't use it because everybody has to have a job or they like have a real tough time a lot of the time. Um, so it's still kind of based around this idea that everybody should be working a lot when the reality isn't the case of that. Um, so and with anarchism, for example, it would be running an actually sensible way when if the work didn't need doing, if there was machines to do it, then no one has to do it. <laughs> you only do work that needs doing. The rest of your time, you can decide what you do with your life. What, what about people perhaps who say that an anarchistic society is just a bit too utopian, that no matter what system we live in, there's always going to be people who will try to take advantage or take more than their share in a way? Um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say anarchism is utopian in the way that a lot of other ideologies are. Um, anarchism very much accepts that the revolution never stops. You know, there is always going to have to be an effort to continue that project, to continue any anarchist project. And one of the threats to it is, like you say, people trying to take advantage. But another thing that we would say to that is that the reason we think that way is because we live in a system currently, capitalism, which encourages people to do that, which encourages you, if there's a free thing, take as much of it as you can, because then maybe you can sell it, you can gain some advantage. If you see an opportunity to exploit someone else, exploit the hell out of them. That's what we've taught our entire lives. So it's only natural that when somebody sees an anarchist society, the first thought is, well, what if someone tries to exploit it? But that's kind of a circular argument, because to reach an anarchist society, you'd need to get to a point where people had generally started to break the chains of like the kind of mental chains that capitalism had put on them. So there's no actual reason for somebody to take a lot more than they need because they, if, if they then find that they need that later, which is one reason you might take more than you need under capitalism, you might need it later. Under an anarchist system, you would just be able to go back and get more as you needed it. There'd be no need to stockpile and hoard like some big greedy dragon because it's kind of everything for everyone, you know? Um, and if people did start, you know, taking the piss, if people did decide that they were going to take advantage and there was nothing we could do to stop them, then there would in fact be a lot we could do to stop them. Like what exactly? Well, that's when it comes down to it. I mean, ejecting from spaces, you know, we could say you're no longer welcome in this community, for example. That's one thing. And there could be processes of restorative justice and ideally trying to work why somebody's behaving that way and trying to rehabilitate them. Because um, it's not, not really a rational way to act in an anarchist society to be to have that level of greed. It's quite an unusual thing to do. Um, you know, you see it in squatted spaces, you see it in autonomous spaces and anarchist spaces all the time. Um, that it does just generally tend to work. And when somebody is kind of, it's, it's very rare to be honest. But when you get somebody being kind of a dick, then one you think that's really weird. That doesn't make sense in this space. And also, you just take precautions against it. How do you um, successful do you think you'll be in achieving your goal? Um, aren't there too many limitations, would you say, especially from some of your adversaries? Uh, not at all. I would say that um, it's ambitious, for sure. And I wouldn't like to say, yes, we are 100% going to do this. But capitalism, capitalism has been around as a system for not that long, a few hundred years. Before that, there was lots of systems, and after it, there were going to be systems as well. Our job is just to try and make that system be anarchism. There's this, there's this kind of um, like widely held belief that kind of props up capitalism. 
it's called the end of history theory that once we reach capitalism we reach late stage capitalism that is the end of history nothing more is going to really happen like this is what we've got forever and oh, that's, i've never heard of this belief what, what is it yeah it's um, a guy called francis fukuyama he's a u.s academic and economisty policy type guy um famously wrote about this in the 90s and it's just the most insanely narcissistic theory i've ever heard in my life personally um <laughs> So, you know, something's going to come after it, um, and I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be something as wonderful as anarchism. Right. But just pointing to one of your slogans that um, has intrigued me, um, climate struggle is class struggle. Mm-hmm. How does that relate? Um, are they somehow intrinsically linked in some way? What What is the link between class struggle and climate struggle? Oh, okay. So there's the kind of two big links. One is who suffers from them. Um, So the people who are going to suffer by far the most from climate change are people, the poorest people in the world. Um, And that's not the poorest people in the UK necessarily. It's the poorest people in in other countries, you know, where flooding and the effects of natural disaster are far, far more severe than in um, like industrialized nations like the UK. Um, So it's ultimately a class issue because the people who are getting screwed by it are those who capitalism would consider to be of the lower classes, but they're also the ones who are contributing the least. And mm. um, so, what is it? The average British person, I, this could be wrong, but it's something like this. The average British person emits in a week, the average person in the global south emissions for a whole year. Uh, it's something like that. You could Google that, but it's pretty close to that. Um, it's outrageous. So there's that, and there's, there's, there's that kind of inequality of outcomes. And there's also the fact that they're both ultimately this part of the same system. Um, climate change is a direct result of capitalism, which is a system which requires constant and sustainable growth. Likewise, class struggle and you know class politics are a result also of capitalism. So when you talk about class struggle, is it not necessarily... For example, in the UK, when we're talking about people of different classes in the UK specifically, how how are they affected by the climate struggle? Okay, so um, it's quite hard to think of really specific examples because I don't know that much about how specifically people would be affected. But I mean, if we ever look at things like... Um, when we look at things like displacement, for example, um, sea levels are going to rise and there are all sorts of maps where you can slide a little slider and it shows the UK slowly sinking and getting smaller and smaller. Um, it is not going to be the richest of others who are suffering the most from that. Rich people will have the money to move into higher land. It won't dramatically affect their lives. Mm. I can definitely see that point. I want to talk now a bit about activism and some of the demonstrations that have faced quite a large amount of criticism recently. What do you have to say about that? Acts which are symbolic and don't inconvenience people with power, I think are dumb and yeah, I don't think there's any value in them really. Um, What we see as having value is acts that yes, might inconvenience the wider public as well, but we always want to be inconveniencing the people who we're against who are the ruling class. So we've got to take a bit of a step back. Yes, somebody being a bit late to work is bad, but it's not as bad as the fact that in 20 years, human civilization is going to be completely, completely different in a bad way if we don't do something about 
climate change. You know, it's, it's about striking that balance as well. But in general, yeah, we absolutely are not here to just piss off the public. We're here to get the public on side and take the fight to the real enemy. Definitely. Well, thanks so much for talking to us. I really appreciate it. It was good to have some of your insight. Thanks for having me on, Darnell. Absolutely. Um, anytime. Now, GAF isn't the first or only group to have made headlines in the past. The group Class War are well known for their actions and campaigns. Much to the amazement of many, the group even went as far as to run for the UK general elections in 2015. Today, researcher and ex-Class War member John Bigger joins me to tell us more. Can you tell me about Class War? What, what is Class War, first of all? Uh, well, first of all, it's just a phrase, isn't it? But of course, it's a phrase that's been going on a long, long time. In terms of the uh, the group class war, that started uh, in the early in the early nineteen eighties. Uh, it started initially with a newspaper that uh, a group of anarchists uh, were handing out at, at demonstrations, and the idea uh, they had was uh, basically they were a little bit frustrated that the anarchist scene was associated with pacifism. They thought that anarchism had lost a bit of bite in Britain. Uh, and uh, a lot of them had been had gone through like the punk movement and they had a kind of punk feel to things and they wanted to bring back a bit of the anger. Uh, and they wanted to actually, seriously, they wanted to embrace uh, rioting and, and violence. And they wanted to use that as a tactic to, uh, to spur uh, revolt. And so they ended up coming uh, to demonstrations with this newspaper uh, which had a very, very um, combative style to it, headlines that were um, that provoked a response. Uh, uh, to a lot of people, it would have provoked a response of, I don't want to have anything to do with these guys. Uh, but to other people, uh, it, 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 it chimed with them. And so they ended up actually beginning to grow and grow and grow. Throughout the 1980s, uh, they, they grew in size. They eventually became a membership organization in the late 1980s, and they played a serious role in the 1990 uh, poll tax riots, which ended up resulting in the uh, poll tax being, um, being got rid of. Uh, and then they went into a bit of a decline, and then eventually... Um, they decided in uh, in 2013 that they would stand candidates in the 2015 general election, which is when I got involved with the group, which was much smaller by that stage. Before we get to there, could you talk to me a little bit more about what Class Hall actually stand for? Yeah, they describe themselves as a working class action group. So they are interested in the idea of the working class. Now, everybody has their own views of social class. Uh, so it is a little bit of a, uh, a difficult thing to define because, of course, sociologists have come along and decided that there are all of these various classes and some people will just talk about the middle class and the working class and other people will have much more elaborate uh, definitions. Mm. Uh, but we've also seen, uh, and uh, class war feel this, we've seen a decline in working class communities uh, from the 1980s onwards, uh, maybe even before, where we've seen uh, things like the miners' strike and attack on trade unions and we've seen uh, gentrification initially with yuppies moving into uh, working class areas and, and meaning that uh, the working class communities there uh, in those areas were priced out of the out of their own areas, areas where their families have been for generations. And we've seen that uh, develop uh, even more 
um, in the years of austerity as well. We had a campaign uh, in class war against what uh, what we call poor doors, which you might have heard of, where um, there are separate entrances in in um, in blocks of flats, uh, depending on whether you own the flat or whether you're a social housing tenant. Uh, we campaigned, um, uh, had a long campaign at a building called One Commercial Street um, regarding poor doors, which actually got a lot of a lot of publicity. Yeah, I actually remember that demonstration. Can you tell us for the listeners who kind of don't know about poor doors? Could you explain a bit more detail what that entails? Yeah, well, if you're a social housing tenant, you have your own entrance, a separate entrance, which is just a very, very basic entrance, and you you cannot mingle. Uh, once you're in the building, you you are you are disconnected from the people who go through the rich doors and through the rich doors there's a nice fancy foyer uh, concierge service and everything's uh, everything's kept uh, well up to date uh, and clean and uh, and bright and spangly um, so so essentially what you have there is social segregation on wealth grounds you have some kind of uh, social apartheid uh, which which has been growing and and at the time that these these started springing up in London uh, when Boris Johnson was mayor rather rather than his uh, grander uh, title of prime minister uh, he did actually uh, talk about how how these should be got rid of but of course uh, it never never materialized um, probably like a lot of uh, nice things that Boris says on the rare occasions which he's which he says them rightly so <laughs> <laughs> um, now a bit of, about the tactics now we were talking to um, a member of another group called the green mm. anti-capitalist front now they've kind of been rising in the headlines now they haven't described themselves as an anarchist organization but they're becoming known for more of their radical action as activists um, yeah. now class war in the past have also been known for this you know with the sort of bash the rich demonstrations in the 1980s mm-hmm. In 2007, there was sort of a plan to protest outside David Cameron's house. And mm-hmm. just last year, we heard that outside the Prime Minister's girlfriend's house, Carrie Simmons, um, mm. there were protests there as well. D- do you think that radical activism will actually increase? And is there really still a place for it nowadays? It, it ebbs and flows. It ebbs and flows. I have to say that uh, uh, the uh, Green Anti-Capitalist Front are absolutely fantastic. Absolutely loving uh, what they what they get up to, or rather, what people get up to under their banner, because it's a it's a call for arms. I think uh, more than a, a specific uh, group of people. Um, but you know, th- these things ebb, ebb and flow, and I think it depends on all sorts of factors. We've we've seen uh, I, I've seen a a kind of decline in this kind of activism um, over the last few years. I think when Jeremy Corbyn became leader of the Labour Party, uh, a lot of people on the left. And, and maybe on the far left suddenly thought, well, here's here's something new. Here's something that we can do that might bring about the kind of society we want uh, through what we might call the normal or official uh, official measures, mm. if you like, or the official methods. Um, but uh, it ebbs and flows because the official methods get you so far. Uh, the official methods are still uh capitalism they are mm. still representatives there is still a hierarchy there is still rich and poor and and when people start to realize actually 
this isn't working. And obviously in uh, December 2019, we saw exactly uh, how far the Corbyn Labour project can get you. Um, people, I think, will return to more direct measures. They will return to direct action. And by direct action, I mean people not looking to intermediaries or the powerful to save them, but trying to save themselves, trying to help themselves. Um, so, yes, I think I think this, this kind, th those kind of actions that you mentioned will increase at some point. Uh, people will uh, turn to, maybe not necessarily turn to anarchism as more people becoming anarchists, for example, but they will turn to methods associated with anarchism because those methods can get results. And uh, sometimes we look at protest uh, movements as being large. We, we want everything to be the biggest protest ever and look at all of these hundreds of thousands going through the street. But sometimes protests work and it's a handful of people mm. because not all protests are trying to change the entire world. Some protests are trying to get a, a small gain uh, against a hostile employer, let's say. We've seen some wonderful campaigns over the last few years by very small unions um, uh, looking after uh, the interests of uh, cleaners, for example, in, in, in big organizations, but the cleaners are outsourced to smaller companies or whatever. And, and these unions are having uh, brilliant campaigns on getting the, the real living wage and, mm -hmm. and succeeding. Um, so uh, one thing I would say is that uh, campaigns don't have to be big. They, don't ha they, they can be small and still be incredibly effective and get great results for the, for the people uh, that, they are, uh, that are concerned with them. Most definitely. Now, I want to talk about something really interesting, which was mm. when Class War ran for the UK 2015 election. Now, seven candidates, candidates stood for election. You were obviously one of them. And you gained, was. was it about 526 votes or so? In, in total, I think. I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, personally, I got 65. Yeah. Uh, so, um, uh, I only needed another 30,000 to actually win the seat. Uh, but, uh, wow. you know, uh, yeah, so, so it wasn't, let's, 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 let's face it, this was not a huge electoral success. Uh, so it's, uh, it's success maybe, maybe lies in uh, other areas. Yeah, but it was still quite a momentous point for a group such as Class War to get that far. Could, could you tell me about, kind of why this was such a unique point for the group yeah it's a momentous occasion for an anarchist group or a group that associates itself with anarchism to even say we're going to stand candidates and i think it was born out of a frustration really it was born out of a frustration that uh, if you remember back to uh, back to 2013 when this decision to stand was was taken the country was a very very different place uh, so this is this is before uh, before the end of the uh, coalition government between David Cameron and Nick Clegg. So uh, before Corbyn became uh, leader, before Brexit was even a word. Uh, so we have a very, very different country. But I think uh, a lot of anarchists were feeling uh, frustrated that uh, how do you break through? How do you make a difference? How do you reach new people? And uh, historically, uh, an anarchist approach to elections uh, has been kind of... Uh, characterized as uh, as anarchists going out and encouraging people not to vote because they say uh, that that voting gets you nowhere ultimately voting will get you a um, a new set of rulers and what anarchists want to do is actually have no hierarchy they want a horizontal society where everybody can 
take part in the decision making process. Uh, so to stand candidates is quite a is quite a momentous occasion. But really, I think it was born out of a frustration of what is the point going around handing out leaflets, encouraging people not to vote when they're probably going to vote regardless of that leaflet people people are not going to be swayed by that idea uh come and join the anarchists is not necessarily a great um a great campaign tool uh, and and actually there might be a way of getting uh getting through to people in a different way and and standing candidates in the election and uh this is what my uh my phd thesis is about um uh what what we were able to do was uh and we ended up with anarchists in spaces which anarchists normally avoid. Mm. So things like hustings events where all of the candidates are assembled to answer questions uh, to the public. Um, suddenly you can bring back heckling to hustings events. Uh, so there was an awful lot of heckling at mm. the hustings event in South Croydon, which I, which I was uh, um, a part of. And, um, so that means uh, that suddenly you're doing something different uh, at those events uh, because they've become very, very controlled and very, very polite in recent times. Uh, back in the day, mm. uh, Hustings events, uh, before people, before everybody had the vote, Hustings events used to be attended by people with the direct uh, and uh, and deliberate intention of disruption and heckling and causing the candidates as much trouble as possible to see how they performed could you could you just, sorry quickly explain what hustings events are for some of those who don't know yeah sure basically all of the candidates in a constituency are invited to an event a public event uh, where the public can ask them questions and hear what the candidates stand for so it's a way of delving a little bit more into more detail into what the candidates believe right. uh, what they think about their manifestos uh, and so on and so forth uh, but they used to be very very uh, hostile environments if you like for the uh, for the candidates and and nowadays we've we've ended up with a society where we are used to uh, intermediaries asking very, very polite questions. So, so the chairs of these hustings events are normally the people asking the questions and you're not allowed to shout out. Well, Class War did shout out. <laughs> Class War made, them, made, made trouble of, of, of these events uh, and made them into, into a different, different, type of, uh, different type of event, really. And, and that means that you can suddenly have direct action in in uh, an area which is part of the official electoral process so you can have uh, campaign launches which are effectively demonstrations rather than just here's my policies uh, you can go on tv and you can call for revolution because you've been given a spot on the bbc's daily politics show or whatever mm -hmm. uh, suddenly you're being asked by journalists because they have to ask all of the candidates questions you're being asked by journalists what anarchism is and so so you're reaching an audience which you which you otherwise wouldn't no. if you were just standing outside a tube station encouraging people not to vote now that's really interesting because i feel that there's a lot of sort of identities when it comes to anarchism like you mentioned yourself that you know some people as anarchists don't even recognize a group that's <clears throat> running in parliament because they just don't see those two ideas being kind of mutually compatible um yeah so can you tell me about sort of what the that perception is among anarchists and how how are they going to sort of transform this into a new new era of anarchism 
Well, I can't speak for all anarchists, of course. I can't speak for the anarchist movement. I can tell you how I feel mm. uh, about anarchist identity, and I, I think there are a, a lot of a lot of people can get hung up on what uh, what we might call uh, anarcho purists, people who want this pure form of anarchism and they want to embody it, and and that is understandable because everybody's got an idea about what anarchism is and 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 whether there is um, uh, whether there is a legitimate um, or whether the um, whether the means fit the end. So so whether people are acting in the way that they should to achieve the end that they want, and that is perfectly understandable. Um, class war, however, uh, have uh, a phrase of, of doing things, um, getting things done by any means necessary. So, um, mm. so that's a catch-all phrase, and perhaps a bit of a bit of a get-out clause uh, that they can do just whatever they like. Obviously, that's not quite quite true because they wouldn't do certain things. But, um, but I think there is probably um, a situation where some anarchists think. Uh, that other groups just aren't anarchist enough, and I think we see this across across politics, but particularly on the left. Uh, the left loves a good schism, a, a good uh, a good way of breaking apart and and shifting apart from from other groups that they disagree with slightly. And it normally comes down to strategy and tactics. It normally comes down to the methods people are using. So. Also, you have to remember that uh, being involved with any kind of, of politics is something that is learned. You don't you don't automatically uh, just simply become uh, an anarchist. You don't simply become a protester. Uh, you probably go on your first protest and it's a, a little demonstration where you march along with everybody else and you're comfortable at doing that. But then maybe 15 years later, you might be comfortable doing uh, doing other things. And I know just from my uh, time uh, being active in politics, uh, I've become much more comfortable with with certain types of direct action. I'm much more interested in in being uh, a little bit not necessarily not necessarily confrontational, but I like to push the boundaries a little bit. I like uh, protests which give powerful people things to think about, uh, and and you don't just do that necessarily by turning up and standing uh, with a placard. You might want to do something a bit more performative. You might want to uh, be able to occupy a building, let's say, for the sake of argument. Uh, that gives them something to think about. They don't want that every week on their on their doorstep. So some people would look at that and think, well, that's too confrontational. I don't want to be involved. And other people would be happy to get involved. Mm. I Kind of looking now a bit more to the, um, to the future and kind of what it means to take these positions of power especially in the government for example do you think anarchism will really rise in britain it's a difficult question because um i could say uh, it is risen it is here it is it is everywhere uh, and anarchists are everywhere um this is a tricky one because it, it gets to the heart of what anarchism is and i i think uh Anarchism can really confuse people because people can just look at it and say it won't work as a system. People look at it and think, how could we have this in a country of 60 million people? And I would say that at the heart of anarchism is a desire for direct democracy and direct democracy really uh, works uh, best at a local level uh, with, uh, with not uh, millions of people involved. So we're talking about a very, very different system potentially. But that's only one side of anarchism. And that might be something that we, that we look towards way in the future. But the other side to anarchism is uh, speaking 
speaking truth to power and trying to upset uh, the hierarchy at every opportunity you get. And in that case, anarchism exists now. Anarchism is all around us right now. There is lots of examples uh, actually making this podcast. We haven't had an authority come along and tell us how to do it, have we? <laughs> we decided how to do it by email and we discussed what we were going to do uh, before we did it. So we haven't had anybody enforcing us to do this. We, 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 practice, uh, we practice forms of anarchism every day of our lives just by working together with people and agreeing with them how we're going to do things without coercing people that's the key if we if we are working with people without a hierarchy without coercion um that is uh, that is anarchism uh, so i would say we've got it already it if it's on the rise then so be it if we have more of it then that's brilliant if we can wrestle control of things more from powerful people, from rich people, from uh, from official uh, organisations, uh, then we are uh, heading along the right lines. That was John Bigger, ex-member of Glass War and researcher into the group. Finally, before we go, where exactly did anarchism come from? To discuss... Professor of Political Theory at Loughborough University, Ruth Kinner. The way I think about anarchism is to think about it as as a principle of self-government. So it's a political practice which is um, focused on self-organising and cooperation in order to resist forms of domination and exploitation um, and to enable people to make decisions for themselves rather than have decisions forced upon them. Anarchism has a very negative image, and, and that's because people don't understand, if you like, that, that anarchism is, is directed towards um, self-government as opposed to the destruction of government. So the reputation of anarchism is, is in, almost entirely negative. The popular kind of image of the anarchist is the, is the image of the, um, the person who wants to destroy all of our institutions, who, who threatens individuals and who will use violence. And, and that's an image that's deeply rooted in, in culture, in literature. Um, and it's one that, that emerged, I mean, right at the start, really, of, of the of the organising of the anarchist movement. So um, the, uh, you know, anarchists were demonised early on as terrorists, um, as, as um, often because they were foreign as well. They were immigrants and therefore dangerous. I mean, they were easy to to categorise as, as threats um, to to the way in which we live. And that that reputation, I think, endures um, despite the best um, efforts of the anarchists to to dispel it. There's a kind of a prehistory of anarchism. I mean, anarchism is normally associated with movements that that begin to emerge around about the 1870s, 1880s. Um, but there are, I mean, anarchists themselves tend to to identify certain principles and practices um, that exist before that time. So, for example, you might find anarchists who, who point to, to movements like the Luddites, for example. I mean, movements which, uh, you know, take, um, take direct action in order to advance a cause of justice. Um, equally, I mean, anarchists will point to a thinker called William Godwin, who wrote, who, so he wrote a book called Political Justice, and he, he wrote many, many things. He also wrote a great novel called Caleb Williams. Um, 
and he was active in the the years after the the French Revolution. He's normally remembered now as the person who who married Mary Wollstonecraft, who who wrote Vindication of the Rights of Woman, and uh, and his daughter was Mary Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein. Um, and but and he defended, although he didn't call himself an anarchist, he defended a, a principle of of um, individual judgment, um, and argued against. Um, the institutions of government in order to enable people to to live their own lives, to define their own sense of right and wrong, um, and to to be um, free from from the interference, if you like, of of central controls. In the 19th century, I mean, it's it takes off. I mean, partly because London is at that time um, quite a, a welcoming place for for political asylum seekers. And so there's a, a whole lot of, of individuals who come across from various parts of, of Europe and uh, particularly Russia, um, where you've got czarist sort of rule and, and oppression, um, but also from Italy and from Germany. Um, and so you have these emigre groups who are organizing with um, other um, British born uh, socialists and people like William Morris, who, again, who doesn't call himself an anarchist, but who who actually quite likes anarchists and who who makes uh, common ground with them, if you like. And there are lots of papers that are set up. There's labor organizing that goes on. Um, and so it's it's quite a vibrant movement in the, in the late 19th century. And that carries on, I suppose, until the war, until 1914, when you've got, you know, all kinds of um, pressures on, on, on labor movements generally. Um, and then it emerges again, I suppose, in the, um, the post-war period, um, particularly through peace activism and CND, um, and um, again, sort of direct action movements that come out of the of, of 68 and, and so forth. The anarchism is, although anarchists define um, themselves or tend to define, I mean, the movement tends to define itself as, as being against the state. It's not a black and white kind of distinction. So there are always spaces, even within the most repressive uh, regimes, um, and the most sort of capitalistic regimes where people can can live differently, they can organize differently. So you'll find in, in contemporary society, in contemporary Britain, you'll find that there are anarchist co-ops, there are social centers, there are archives, uh, the publishing houses, there's all kinds of stuff that's going on. Um, I mean, people organize through um, through punk movements, uh, through all kinds of, of, of horizontal leaderless uh, organizations and uh, if you look on the web you'll find that that anarchists are incredibly um, active and and dynamic so I think there's there's always a space for people to to resist the the forces of, of um, oppression if you like and you know be that through uh, gender oppression or racism or, or any form it takes and equally to resist the, the the sort of the gross and growing inequalities that we that we face um, in ways that don't involve um, hierarchy and and authority and and leadership. Anarchism is always there, and and because partly because I think anarchism is a um, is a, an impulse, if you like, as much as a as an ideology. So I don't think anarchists. I mean, anarchists typically aren't, aren't flag waving, badge wearing organizers they're they're people who um who tend to enter into 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 complex and multiply multiple sort of movements uh, in order to advance as i say self-government and cooperation and 
Um, you know, there are lots of people who behave anarchistically without even thinking of themselves as anarchist. That was Ruth Kinner, Professor of Political Theory at Loughborough University. My thanks to her, John Bigger and the Green Anti-Capitalist Front for their contribution on today's episode. That's all for now. If you enjoyed that episode, remember to rate, share and subscribe too. You can also follow me both on Twitter and Instagram at Darnell underscore Christie to find more content. And of course, as I always say, don't be afraid to give your suggestions on what you would like discussed next on Darnell Response. Thanks for tuning in and I'll be back real soon. Until then, have a phenomenal time. See you soon.